Chapter 8 of The Black Bag. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. The Black Bag by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter 8 Madame L'Intrigant. Mrs. Hallam! cried Kirkwood beneath his breath. The woman ignored his existence. Moving swiftly forward, she dropped on both knees by the side of the boy and caught up one of his hands, clasping it passionately in her own. "'Fred!' she cried, a curious break in her tone. "'My little Freddy! Oh, what has happened, dearie?' "'Oh, hello, mamma," grunted that young man, submitting listlessly to her caresses and betraying no overwhelming surprise at her appearance there. Indeed, he seemed more concerned as to what Kirkwood, an older man, would be thinking to see him so endeared and fondled, than moved by any other emotion. Kirkwood could see his shamefaced sidelong glances, and despised him properly for them. But, without attending to his response, Mrs. Hallam rattled on in the uneven accents of excitement. I waited until I couldn't wait any longer, Freddy dear. I had to know, had to come. Eccles came home about nine and said that you had told him to wait outside, that someone had followed you in here, and that Bobby had told him to move on. I didn't know what. What o'clock now? her son interrupted. It's about three, I think. Have you hurt yourself, dear? Oh, why didn't you come home? You must have known I was dying of anxiety. Oh, I say, can't you see I'm hurt? Had a nasty fall, and must have been asleep ever since. My precious one, how? Can't say hardly. I say, don't paw a chap so, Mama. I brought Eccles along and told him to wait, because, well, because I didn't feel so much like shutting myself up in this beastly old tomb. So I left the door ajar and told him not to let anybody come in. Then I came upstairs. There must have been somebody already in the house. I know I thought there was. It made me feel creepy, rather. At any rate, I heard voices down below, and the door banged, and somebody began hammering like fun on the knocker. The boy paused, rolling an embarrassed eye up at the stranger. "'Yes, yes, dear,' Mrs. Hallam urged him on. "'Why, I—I I made up my mind to cut my stick.' let whoever it was pass me on the stairs, you know. But he followed me and struck me, and then I jumped at him, and we both fell down the whole flight. And that's all. Besides, my head's aching like everything. But this man? Mrs. Hallam looked up at Kirkwood, who bowed silently, struggling to hide both his amusement and perplexity. More than ever, now, the case presented a front inscrutable to his wits. Try as he might, he failed to fit an explanation to any incident in which he had figured, while this last development, that his antagonist of the dark stairway had been Mrs. Hallam's son, seemed the most astounding of all, baffling elucidation completely. He had abandoned all thought of flight and escape. It was too late. In the brisk idiom of his mother tongue, he was caught with the goods on. May as well face the music, he counseled himself, in resignation. From what he had seen and surmised of Mrs. Hallam, he shrewdly suspected that the tune would prove an exceedingly lively one. 
She seemed a woman of imagination, originality, and an able-bodied temper. You! Mr. Kirkwood! Again he bowed, grinning awry. She rose suddenly. You will be good enough to explain your presence here, she informed him with dangerous serenity. To be frank with you, I advise that course, Mr. Kirkwood. Thanks awfully. I came here half an hour ago, looking for a lost purse, full, well, not quite full, of sovereigns. It was my purse, by the way. Suspicion glinted like foxfire in the cold green eyes beneath her puckered brows. I do not understand, she said slowly and in level tones. I didn't expect you to, returned Kirkwood. No more do I. But, anyway, it must be clear to you that I've done my best for this gentleman here. He paused with an interrogative lift of his eyebrows. This gentleman is my son, Frederick Hallam. But you will explain... Pardon me, Mrs. Hallam, I shall explain nothing at present. Permit me to point out that your position here, like mine, is, to say the least, anomalous. The random stroke told, as he could tell by the instant contraction of her eyes of a cat, it would be best to defer explanations till a more convenient time, don't you think? Then, if you like, we can chant confidences in an antiphonal chorus. Just now, your, uh, son is not enjoying himself, apparently, and the attention of the police had best not be called to this house too often in one night. His levity seemed to displease and perturb the woman. She turned from him with an impatient movement of her shoulders. Freddy, dear, do you feel able to walk? Uh, oh, I dare say. I don't know. Wonder would your friend, uh, Mr. Kirkwood, lend me an arm? Charmed, Kirkwood declared suavely. If you'll take the candle, Mrs. Hallam. He helped the boy to his feet and, while the latter hung upon him and complained querulously, stood waiting for the woman to lead the way with the light, something which, however, she seemed in no haste to do. The pause at length puzzled Kirkwood, and he turned to find Mrs. Hallam holding her candlestick and regarding him steadily, with much the same expression of furtive mistrust as that with which she had favored him on her own door-stoop. "'One moment,' she interposed in confusion. I won't keep you waiting. And, passing with an averted face, ran quickly upstairs to the second floor, taking the light with her. Its glow faded from the walls above, and Kirkwood surmised that she had entered the front bedchamber. For some moments he could hear her moving about. Once something scraped and bumped on the floor, as if a heavy bit of furniture had been moved. Again there was a resounding thud that defied speculation and this was presently followed by a dull clang of metal. His fugitive speculations afforded him little enlightenment, and, meantime, young Hallam, leaning partly against the wall and quite heavily on Kirkwood's arm, filled his ears with puerile oaths and lamentations, so that, but for the excuse of his really severe shaking up, Kirkwood had been strongly tempted to take the youngster by the shoulders and kick him heartily, for the health of his soul. But, eventually, it was not really long, there came the quick rush of Mrs. Hallam's feet along the upper hall, and the woman reappeared, one hand holding her skirts clear of her pretty feet as she descended in a rush that caused the candle's flame to flicker perilously. Halfway down, Mr. Kirkwood, 
she called tempestuously. "'Didn't you find it?' he countered blandly. She stopped jerkily at the bottom, and after a moment of confusion, "'Find what, sir?' she asked. "'What you sought, Mrs. Hallam.' Smiling, he bore unflinching the prolonged inspection of her eyes, at once somber with doubt of him and flashing with indignation because of his impudence. "'You knew I wouldn't find it, then, didn't you?' "'I may have suspected you wouldn't.' Now he was sure that she had been searching for the Gladstone bag. That evidently was the bone of contention. Calendar had sent his daughter for it, Mrs. Hallam her son. Dorothy had been successful. But, on the other hand, Calendar and Mrs. Hallam were unquestionably allies. Why, then, where is it, Mr. Kirkwood? Madam, have you the right to know? Through another lengthening pause, while they faced each other, he marked again the curious contraction of her under lip. "'I have the right,' she declared steadily. "'Where is it?' "'How can I be sure?' "'Then you don't know.' "'Indeed,' he interrupted. "'I would be glad to feel that I ought to tell you what I know.' "'What you know?' The exclamation, low-spoken, more an echo of her thoughts than intended for Kirkwood, was accompanied by a little shake of the woman's head, mute evidence to the fact that she was bewildered by his finesse. And this delighted the young man beyond measure, making him feel himself master of a difficult situation. Mysteries had been woven before his eyes so persistently of late that it was a real pleasure to be able to do a little mystifying on his own account. By adopting this reticent and non-committal attitude, he was forcing the hand of a woman old enough to be his mother, and most evidently a past mistress in the art of misleading, all of which seemed very fascinating to the amateur in adventure. The woman would have led again, but young Hallam cut in, none too courteously. "'I say, Mama, it's no good standing here, palaverin' like a lot of flats.' Besides, I'm awfully knocked up. Let's go home and have it out there. Instantly his mother softened. My poor boy, of course we'll go. Without further demur, she swept past and down the stairway before them. Slowly, for their progress was of necessity slow, and the light most needed. Once they were in the main hall, however, she extinguished the candle, placed it on a side table, and passed out through the door. It had been left open as before, and Kirkwood was not at all surprised to see a man waiting on the threshold. The versatile Eccles, if he erred not. He had little chance to identify him, as it happened, for at a word from Mrs. Hallam the man bowed and, following her across the sidewalk, opened the door of a four-wheeler which, with lamps alight and livery driver on the box, had been waiting at the carriage block. As they passed out, Kirkwood shut the door, and at the same moment the little party was brought up standing by a gruff and authoritative summons. "'Just a minute, please. You there!' "'Aha!' said Kirkwood to himself. "'I thought so.' And he halted, in unfeigned respect for the burly and impressive figure, garbed in blue and brass, helmeted and truncheoned, bull's-eye shining on breast like the law's unblinking and sleepless eye barring the way to the carriage. Mrs. Hallam showed less deference for the obstructionist, 
The assumed hauteur and impatience of her pose was artfully reflected in her voice as she rounded upon the bobby, with an indignant demand. "'What is the meaning of this, officer?' "'Precisely what I wants to know, ma'am,' returned the man, unyielding beneath his respectful attitude. "'I'm obliged to ask you to tell me what you were doing in that house. "'And what's the matter with this ere gentleman?' he added, with a dubious stare at young Hallam's bandaged head and rumpled clothing. "'Perhaps you don't understand,' admitted Mrs. Hallam sweetly. "'Of course, I see. It's perfectly natural. The house has been shut up for some time, and—' "'Thank you, ma'am. That's just it. There was something wrong going on early in the evening, and I was told to keep an eye on the premises. It's duty, ma'am. I've got my report to make.' The house, said Mrs. Hallam, with a long-suffering patience of one elucidating a perfectly plain proposition to a being of a lower order of intelligence, is the property of my son, Arthur Frederick Burgoyne Hallam, of Cornwall. This is, beg pardon, ma'am, but I was told Colonel George Burgoyne of Cornwall. Colonel Burgoyne died some time ago. My son is his heir. This is my son. He came to the house this evening to get some property he desired, and, it seems, tripped on the stairs and fell unconscious. I became worried about him, and drove over, accompanied by my friend, Mr. Kirkwood. The policeman looked his troubled state of mind, and wagged a doubtful head over the case. There was his duty, and there was, opposed to it, the fact that all three were garbed in the livery of the well-to-do. At length, turning to the driver, he demanded, received, and noted in his memorandum book the license number of the equipage. "'It's a very unusual case, ma'am,' he apologized. "'I hopes you won't hold it against me. I'm only trying to do my duty.' "'And safeguard our property. You are perfectly justified, officer.' "'Thank you, ma'am. And would you mind giving me your cards, please, all of you?' "'Certainly not.' Without hesitation, the woman took a little handbag from the seat of the carriage and produced a card. Her son likewise found his case and handed the officer an oblong slip. "'I've no cards with me,' the American told the policeman. "'My name, however, is Philip Kirkwood, and I'm staying at the Pless.' "'Very good, sir. Thank you.' The man penciled the information in his little book. "'Thank you, ma'am, and Mr. Hallam, sir.' "'Sorry to have detained you. Good morning.' Kirkwood helped young Hallam into the carriage, gave Mrs. Hallam his hand, and followed her. The man Eccles shut the door, mounting the box beside the driver. Immediately they were in motion. The American got a final glimpse of the bobby, standing in front of number 9, Frognall Street, and watching them with an air of profound uncertainty. He had Kirkwood's sympathy therein, but he had little time to feel with him, for Mrs. Hallam turned upon him very suddenly. "'Mr. Kirkwood, will you be good enough to tell me who and what you are?' The young man smiled his homely, candid smile. "'I'll be only too glad, Mrs. Hallam, when I feel sure you'll do as much for yourself.' She gave him no answer. It was as if she were choosing words. Kirkwood braced himself to meet the storm— but none ensued. There was rather a lull, which strung itself out indefinitely, to the monotonous music of hooves and rubber tires. 
Young Hallam was resting his empty blond head against the cushions, and had closed his eyes. He seemed to doze, but, as the carriage rolled past the frequent street lights, Kirkwood could see that the eyes of Mrs. Hallam were steadily directed to his face. His outward composure was tempered by some amusement, by more admiration. The woman's eyes were very handsome, even when hardest and most cold. It was not easy to conceive of her as being the mother of a son so immaturely mature. Why, she must have been at least thirty-eight or nine. One wondered. She did not look it. The carriage stopped before a house with lighted windows. Eccles jumped down from the box and scurried to open the front door. The radiance of a hall lamp was streaming out into the misty night when he returned to release his employers. They were returned to Craven Street. One more lap around the track, mused Kirkwood. Wonder will the next take me back to Bermondsey Old Stairs. At Mrs. Hallam's direction, Eccles ushered him into the smoking room, on the ground floor in the rear of the dwelling, there to wait until she helped her son upstairs and to bed. He sighed with pleasure at first glimpse of his luxurious but informal comforts, and threw himself carelessly into a heavily padded lounging chair. Dropping one knee over the other, and lighting the last of his expensive cigars, with a sensation of undiluted gratitude, as one coming to rest in the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Over his shoulder a home-like illumination was cast by an electric reading-lamp shaded with red silk. At his feet brass fire-dogs winked sleepily in the fluttering blaze of a well-tended stove. The walls were hung with deep red the doors and divans upholstered in the same restful shade. In one corner an old clock ticked soberly. The atmosphere would have proved a potent invitation to reverie, if not to sleep. He was very sleepy, but for the confusion in the house. In its chambers, through the walls, on the stairs, there were hurryings and scurryings of feet and skirts, confused with murmuring voices. Presently, in an adjoining room, Philip Kirkwood heard a maidservant wrestling hopefully with that most exasperating of modern time-saving devices, the telephone, as countenanced by our English cousins. Her patience and determination won his approval, but availed nothing for her purpose. In the outcome, the telephone triumphed, and the maid gave up the unequal contest. Later, a butler entered the room, a short and sturdy fellow, extremely ill at ease. Drawing a small tabouret to the side of Kirkwood's chair, he placed thereon a tray, deferentially imparting the information that Mrs. Allam had thought how as Mr. Kirkwood might care for a bit of supper. "'Please thank Mrs. Allam for me,' Kirkwood's gratified eyes ranged the laden tray. There were sandwiches, biscuit, cheese, and a pot of black coffee with sugar and cream. It was very kindly thought of, he added. Very good, sir. Thank you, sir. The man turned to go, shuffling soundlessly. Kirkwood was suddenly impressed with his evasiveness. Ever since he had entered the room, his countenance had seemed turned from the guest. Eccles, he called sharply, at a venture. The butler halted, thunderstruck. "'Yes, sir?' "'Turn around, Eccles. I want to look at you.' Eccles faced him unwillingly, with a stolid front but shifty eyes. Kirkwood glanced him up and down, grinning. "'Thank you, Eccles. 
I'll remember you now. You'll remember me, too, won't you? You're a bad actor, aren't you, Eccles? Yes, sir. Thank you, sir, mumbled the man unhappily, and took instant advantage of the implied permission to go. Intensely diverted by the recollection of Eccles' abortive attempt to stop him at the door of number nine, and wondering, now that he came to think of it, why, precisely, young Hallam had deemed it necessary to travel with a bodyguard and adopt such furtive methods to enter as well as to obtain what was asserted to be his own property, Kirkwood turned active attention to the lunch. Thoughtfully, he poured himself a cup of coffee, swallowing it hot and black as it came from the silver pot, then munched the sandwiches. It was kindly thought of, this early morning repast. Mrs. Hallam seemed more and more a remarkable woman with each phase of her character that she chose to disclose. At odds with him, she yet took time to think of his creature needs. What could be her motive? Not in feeding him, but in involving her name and fortune in an affair so strangely flavored. This opened up a desert waste of barren speculation. What's anybody's motive who figures in this thundering dime novel? demanded the American, almost contemptuously, and, for the hundredth time, gave it up. The day should declare it. If so hap he lived in to see that day, a distant one, he made no doubt. The only clear fact in his befogged and bemused mentality was that he was at once broke, and in this business up to his ears. Well, he'd see it through. He'd nothing better to do. And there was the girl. Dorothy, whose eyes and lips he had but to close his own eyes to see again, as vividly as though she stood before him. Dorothy, whose unspoiled sweetness stood out in vivid relief against this moil and toil of conspiracy. Like a star of evening, shining clear in a stormy sky. Poetic simile. I'm going fast, conceded Kirkwood, but he did not smile. It was becoming quite too serious a matter for laughter. For her sake, he was in the game for keeps, especially in view of the fact that everything, his own heart's inclination included, seemed to conspire to keep him in it. Of course, he hoped for nothing in return. A pauper, who turns squire of dames with matrimonial intent, is open to the designation penniless adventurer. No, whatever service he might be to the girl would be ample recompense to him for his labors and afterwards he'd go his way in peace. She'd soon forget him, if she hadn't already. Women, he propounded gravely, are queer. There's no telling anything about them. One of the most unreadable specimens of the sex on which he pronounced this highly original dictum entered the room just then, and he found himself at once out of his chair and his dream, bowing. Mrs. Hallam. The woman nodded and smiled graciously. Eccles has attended to your needs, I hope. Please don't stop smoking. She sank into an armchair on the other side of the hearth, and, probably by accident, out of the radius of illumination from the lamp, sitting sidewise, one knee above the other, her white arms immaculate against the somber background of shadowed crimson. She was very handsome indeed. Just then, though a keener light might have proved less flattering. Now, Mr. Kirkwood, she opened briskly, with a second intimate and friendly nod, and paused, her pose receptive. 
Kirkwood sat down again, smiling good-natured appreciation of her unprejudiced attitude. "'Your son, Mrs. Hallam. Oh, Freddy's doing well enough. Freddy, she explained, has a delicate constitution and has seen little of the world. Such melodrama as tonight's is apt to shock him severely. We must make allowances, Mr. Kirkwood.' Kirkwood grinned again, a trace unsympathetically. He was unable to simulate any enthusiasm on the subject of poor Freddy, whom he had sized up with passable acumen as a spoiled and coddled child, completely under the thumb of an extremely clever mother. Yes, he responded vaguely. He'll be quite fit after a night's sleep, I dare say. The woman was watching him keenly, beneath her lowered lashes. I think, she said deliberately, that it is time we came to an understanding. Kirkwood agreed. Yes, affably. I propose being perfectly straightforward. To begin with, I don't place you, Mr. Kirkwood. You are an unknown quantity, a new factor. Won't you please tell me what you are, and are you a friend of Mr. Calendar's? I think I may lay claim to that honor, though, to Kirkwood's way of seeing things, some little frankness on his own part would be essential if they were to get on. I hardly know him, Mrs. Hallam. I had the pleasure of meeting him only this afternoon. She knitted her brows over this statement. That, I assure you, is the truth, he laughed. But I really don't understand. Nor I, Mrs. Hallam. Calendar aside, I am Philip Kirkwood, American, resident abroad for some years, a native of San Francisco, of a certain age, unmarried, by profession a poor painter. And, beyond that, I presume I must tell you, though, I confess I'm in doubt, he hesitated, weighing candor in the balance with discretion. But who are you for? Are you in George Callender's pay? Heaven forfend, piously. My sole interest at the present moment is to unravel a most entrancing mystery. Entitled Dorothy Callender. Of course. You've known her long? Eight hours, I believe, he admitted gravely. Less than that, in fact. Miss Callender's interests will not suffer through anything you may tell me. Whether they will or no, I see I must swing a looser tongue, or you'll be showing me the door. The woman shook her head amused. Not until, she told him significantly. Very well, then. And he launched into an abridged narrative of the night's events, as he understood them, touching lightly on his own circumstances, the real poverty which had brought him back to Craven Street by way of Frognall. And there you have it all, Mrs. Hallam. She sat in silent musing, now and again he caught the glint of her eyes, and knew that he was being appraised with such trained acumen as only long knowledge of men can give to women. He wondered if he were found wanting. Her dark head bended, elbow on knee, chin resting lightly in the cradle of her slender, parted fingers, the woman thought profoundly, her reverie ending with a brief, curt laugh, musical and mirthless as the sound of breaking glass. It is so like Calendar, she exclaimed, so like him that one sees how foolish it was to trust, no, not to trust, but to believe that he could even be thrown off the scent, once he got nose to ground. So, if we suffer, 
my son and I, I shall have only myself to thank. Kirkwood waited in patient attention till she chose to continue. When she did, now, for my side of the case, cried Mrs. Hallam, and rising, began to pace the room, her slender and rounded figure swaying gracefully, the while she talked. George Calendar is a scoundrel, she said, a swindler, gambler, what I believe you Americans call a confidence man. He is also my late husband's first cousin. Some years since he found it convenient to leave England, likewise his wife and daughter, Mrs. Callendar, a countrywoman of yours, by the by, died shortly afterwards. Dorothy, by the merest accident, obtained a situation as private secretary in the household of the late Colonel Burgoyne, of the Cliffs, Cornwall. You follow me? Yes, perfectly. Colonel Burgoyne died, leaving his estates to my son some time ago. Shortly afterwards, Dorothy Calendar disappeared. We know now that her father took her away, but then the disappearance seemed inexplicable, especially since with her vanished a great deal of valuable information. She alone knew of the location of certain of the old colonel's personal effects. He was an eccentric. One of his peculiarities involved the secreting of valuables in odd places. He had no faith in banks. Among these valuables were the Burgoyne family jewels. Quite a treasure, believe me, Mr. Kirkwood. We found no note of them among the colonel's papers, and without Dorothy were powerless to pursue a search for them. We advertised and employed detectives, with no result. It seems that father and daughter were at Monte Carlo at the time. "'Beautifully circumstantial, my dear lady,' commented Kirkwood, to his inner consciousness. Outwardly, he maintained consistently a pose of impassive gullibility. "'This afternoon, for the first time, we received news of the Calendars. Calendar himself called upon me to beg a loan. I explained our difficulty, and he promised that Dorothy should send us the information by the morning's post. When I insisted, he agreed to bring it himself, after dinner—' this evening. I make it quite clear? She interrupted, a little anxious. Quite clear, I assure you, he assented encouragingly. Strangely enough, he had not been gone ten minutes when my son came in from a conference with our solicitors, informing me that at last a memorandum had turned up, indicating that the heirlooms would be found in a safe secreted behind a dresser in Colonel Burgoyne's bedroom. At number nine, Frognall Street. Yes, I proposed going there at once, but it was late, and we were dining at the Pless with an acquaintance, a Mr. Mulready, whom I now recall as a former intimate of George Callendar. To our surprise, we saw Callendar and his daughter at a table not far from ours. Mr. Mulready betrayed some agitation at the sight of Callendar, and told me that Scotland Yard had a man out with a warrant for Callendar's arrest on old charges. For old sake's sake, Mr. Mulready begged me to give Calendar a word of warning. I did so, foolishly, it seems. Calendar was, at that moment, planning to rob us, Mulready aiding and abetting him. The woman paused before Kirkwood, looking down upon him. And so, she concluded, we have been tricked and swindled. I can scarcely believe it of Dorothy Calendar. I, for one, don't believe it. Kirkwood spoke quietly, rising. 
Whatever the culpability of Calendar and Mulready, Dorothy was only their hoodwinked tool. But, Mr. Kirkwood, she must have known the jewels were not hers. Yes, he assented passively, but wholly unconvinced. And what? she demanded, with a gesture of exasperation. What would you advise? Scotland Yard, he told her bluntly. But it's a family secret. It must not appear in the papers. Don't you understand? George Callender is my husband's cousin. I can think of nothing else unless you pursue them in person. But whither? That remains to be discovered. I can tell you nothing more than I have. May I thank you for your hospitality? Express my regrets that I should unwittingly have been made the agent of this disaster, and wish you good night, or rather, good morning, Mrs. Hallam? For a moment she held him under a calculating glance which he withstood with graceless fortitude. Then, realizing that he was determined not by any means to be won to her cause, she gave him her hand, with a commonplace wish that he might find his affairs in better order than seemed probable, and rang for Eccles. The butler showed him out. He took away with him two strong impressions, the one visual of a strikingly handsome woman in a wonderful gown, standing under the red glow of a reading lamp in an attitude of intense mental concentration, her expression plainly indicative of a train of thought not guiltless of vindictiveness. The other, more mental but as real, he presently voiced to the huge bronze lions brooding over desolate Trafalgar Square. Well, appreciated Mr. Kirkwood with gusto, she's got Ananias and Sapphira talked to a standstill all right. He ruminated over this for a moment. Calendar can lie some, too, but hardly with her picturesque touch. Uncommon ingenious, I call it. All the same, there were only about a dozen bits of tiling that didn't fit into her mosaic a little bit. I think they're all tarred with the same stick, all but the girl. And there's something afoot a long sight more devilish and crafty than that shilling shocker of madam's. Dorothy Callender's got about as much active part in it as I have. I'm only from California, but they've got to show me, before I'll believe a word against her. Those infernal scoundrels. "'Somebody's got to be on the girl's side, and I seem to have drawn the lucky straw. "'Good heavens! Is it possible for a grown man to fall heels overhead in love in two short hours? "'I don't believe it. It's just interest. Nothing more. "'And I'll have to have a change of clothes before I can do anything further.' "'He bowed gratefully to the lions.' in view of their tolerant interest in his soliloquy, and set off very suddenly round the square and up St. Martin's Lane, striking across town as directly as might be for St. Pancras Station. It would undoubtedly be a long walk, but cabs were prohibited by his straitened means, and the buses were all abed and wouldn't be astir for hours. He strode along rapidly finding his way more through intuition than by observation or familiarity with London's geography. Indeed, was scarce aware of his surroundings, for his brain was big with fine imagery, wrapped in a glowing dream of knight-errantry and chivalric deeds. Thus it is ever and always with those who in the purity of young hearts rush in where angels fear to tread. If these, Kirkwood and his ilk, be fools, thank God for them, 
for with such foolishness is life savored and made sweet and sound. To Kirkwood, the warp of the world and the woof of it was romance, and it wrapped him round a magic mantle to set him apart from all things mean and sordid and render him impregnable and invisible to the haunting shade of care which, by the same token, presently lost track of him entirely, and wandered off to find and bedevil some other poor devil. And Kirkwood, his eyes, like his spirit, elevated, saw that the clouds of night were breaking, the skies clearing, that the east pulsed ever more strongly with the dim golden promise of the day to come. And this he chose to take for an omen, prematurely, it may be. End of chapter 8 Recording by William Tomko